Growing up, I always liked reading fantasy books. So whether it was Harry Potter, or Percy Jackson, or Aragon, or a lot of these different a fantasy big Harry books. Potter guy. In my eyes, it was always like, when I'm looking at the, this book, I always wanted to be, <laughs> I always wanted to be the hero, the main protagonist, the main character. It's whenever somebody, you know, oh, who's your favorite character in Harry Potter? It, it astounded me when someone would say <laughs> Ron, or when someone would say, you know, anybody other than the hero of it. And so I think uh, one thing that any entrepreneur needs is uh, the desire or the confidence to actually believe that they can be yep. a hero in some sense. Today on Austinpreneur, we speak with Matthew Iomi, who is CEO and founder of Fetty. If you enjoy the nightlife of Austin, Texas, chances are you've already hopped in a Fetty with some friends, or you've at least seen one of their branded Sprinter vans around town. As an undergraduate at Texas A&M, Matthew started Fetty with his business partner when they acquired a party bus company with a single bus. Upon graduation, they went through Y Combinator, raised a seed round, moved to Austin, and joined Capital Factory. Today, Fetty is a hard-to-miss brand in Austin, Matthew is on the Forbes 30 under 30, and the company is just getting started. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Hello, entrepreneurs and everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this startup-focused podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, then make plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't-miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th. Be at the Startup Track, South by Southwest Pitch, or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make March Magic in Austin so special, South by Southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas, new business models, new markets, new innovators, and new talent, as well as make some incredible new connections. Always find the most information about South by Southwest at www.sxsw.com. Matthew, welcome to Longhorn Startup and back to Capital Factory. Thank you for having me. Well, we just established a second ago that you did attend a different school, the, the Texas A&M University, but you're living here in Austin. How about, you know, take us back before you started Fetty and, you know, kind of what led to starting this venture? Yeah, so I think always, you know, it's always the question that people ask why someone does what they do or why someone starts a company, why someone wants to, you know, achieve certain things. And that's, I think, a deep psychological question that we're all asking ourselves and I continue to ask myself as well. But for whatever reason, I wanted to make something that I think people like to use, um, made a difference, and I think could propel me to achieve 
uh, certain goals that I want to in this life. And so that was kind of the thing that I was always looking for. And so prior to Fetty, which Fetty I started senior year in college. So prior to that, there was a couple ventures I tried. For example, one of them was a roadside assistance company. So that's kind of just digitalizing and, and creating a more efficient solution for roadside assistance. Were you, were you in college or in high school? Yeah, I was in college. college? Yeah, yep. this was still in college. And just kind of understood, and I'll give you an example. So what I thought is we could create a, a better website or a better, or, or even an app where if you needed roadside assistance, you could simply go to it. We'd find it's marketplace set up where somebody who has the knowledge gets a ping. Hey, someone in your area needs a tire change. Go ahead. Both people, you know, that person makes money. The person's tire gets fixed in a relatively quick time. And so I was out there trying to make this thing work, changing people's tires, getting more data. First through a website, creating SEO, all this different stuff, and came to the realization that this business is so infrequent for a person that they're not going to have an app on their phone for something that happens maybe once a month, if that, right? Or, you know, it's just something that wasn't high frequency, high utilized to where it happens so rarely that they'll just take their chances and Google roadside assistance near me and find someone, right? So we re never really found product market fit. Another thing that I tried to do was a product that was a portable charger for phones where you could order a package, a package with about five of these mini devices that you would put into your phone. They already came pre-charged, so in an emergency, plug it into your phone, get 50% of battery, and then you throw it away. Never really found product market fit in that. Kept on trying on that. So, so that's just to explain kind of the background of the journey of eventually getting to Fetty, that it wasn't one day I woke up and said, hey, let me try transportation and it worked and I'm just the best entrepreneur to ever do it and I'm so good. The thing is if you keep on throwing your darts, eventually something's gonna hit. Eventually you're gonna run into something that people wanna use and wanna experience. And so that's probably my biggest thing is that because I was looking for opportunities, opportunity came to me, if that makes sense. Was there what turned you on to entrepreneurship and really inspired you to go start that first roadside assistance company? A couple things. I mean, one thing is that my father was an entrepreneur. And so from the get-go, I was already exposed to kind of this different way of life where it wasn't the standard, you know, you go through high, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, college, you work for a company, maybe you work for a startup, then you go build a company, hopefully, or you work your way up. From the get-go, I mean, even my father didn't really encouraged me to go to college. So already the, you know, the normalization of today's society was broken in my eyes. So it's kind of anything's possible. So to me, I thought, okay, well, building a company sounds good, sounds fun, which it's, it's not as fun as you would think. <laughs> and, and I think that's one big thing that led, led me to do it was kind of having that foresight to know that it is an option because a lot of people aren't really even aware that it is an option. They think there's no way that I could start a company. I mean, it's only the rich of the rich start them or the well-connected or well-networked, which really isn't true. And then the other part of it, I think for me is kind of that you want to create a life that, that I think doesn't get lost in the chaos of, of the world and the life and whether that's in a local, city, state, national, global 
scale, I think everyone here, especially given where you are right now in the country that you're in, have a big opportunity to, to at least attempt to build something or start something that I think has a huge impact. So I think that's, that was one thing for me. Yeah, that's great. And so it sounds like your dad was an entrepreneur and that really made it feel attainable. Yeah. And I was the other way. I, I never really even knew it was an option and not even people yeah. in my community, you know, it wasn't something and moving down here to go to UT, you know, it was just kind of hits you in the face, like all these people doing interesting things mm-hmm. and, you know, mentors trying to support you and all that. So. But it, it, and it's this pathway for like purpose for your life and like really, you know, just like, which is more valuable than any amount of money you could really make is like, I want to do something unique and special with, you know, my time here. Exactly. And one thing too is I always like to think that it had some sort of effect, but growing up, I always liked reading fantasy books. So whether it was Harry Potter or Percy Jackson or Aragon or a lot of these different fantasy Harry books. Guy. In my eyes, it was always like, when I'm looking at the, this book, I always wanted to be, <laughs> I always wanted to be the hero, the main protagonist, the main character. It's whenever somebody, you know, oh, who's your favorite character in Harry Potter? It, it astounded me when someone would say Ron <laughs> or when someone would say, you know, anybody other than the hero of it. And so I think uh, one thing that any entrepreneur needs is uh, the desire or the confidence to actually believe that they can be yep. a hero in some sense. Yeah, totally. All right, and then how did you end up starting Fetty? My senior year, um, I had about three classes left at AM. Typically, your senior year, you've kind of gone through most of your credits and you're just wrapping things up. I was going to go into private equity or investment banking, and just getting prepared for that, I had a lot of time on my hands. And so, happenstance, I was on a Facebook marketplace and I saw two students looking to sell a party bus business. And it was just one bus, they only had one bus at a and It was a shuttle bus, 15 passengers, or 30 passengers. And what was interesting is that they were charging their customers $5 per person cash to get them typically from a pregame, a house party to Northgate, the bar area there. And they had repeat customers. People were using them maybe not every week, but maybe once a month. That was one of the lessons you learned from the earlier business. Yeah, exactly. And so I looked more into it. I thought it was really interesting. And, and one thing that was interesting about it was that these people were utilizing this service because they wanted to ride together. And there really wasn't a viable option other than paying these two students $5 each to go to the bars or a sorority event, a fraternity event, an org event, or or even dinner, whatever it may be. The reason being is that either one option they had was to split up the group and take two, three, four Ubers or Lyfts, or reserve a party bus days or weeks in advance, pay a three to five hour minimum, not five or five dollars per person, but a three to five hour minimum for maybe a 15 minute ride, and no flexibility where you're not paying the five dollars per cash at the door, which is what they were doing. Instead, you're putting a down deposit and an arm and a leg and hoping everyone pays you back. And so at that point, I thought it was something that would be a good side business and that we could digitalize it. They didn't have a website. They were doing everything through text messages on a business phone. It was very, it was, it was amateur, but it seemed like just knowing my, just having the business savvy that I did, I could easily just come in, get my partner who's the tech guy, help build out a website payment system, do some good marketing, 
um, just properly create an infrastructure, then go out, hire a manager. that They themselves were driving the buses, so hire drivers, hire a manager, and just have something that while I'm going on and doing you know, the next part, either in my career or, or a bigger business, something that's just growing or just producing cash flow for me. Obviously, that's not what ended up happening. But from there, we purchased it. I was driving these buses every weekend trying to figure out how the business worked. And eventually, we created the website. We, we started having the payment systems. We had to take cash out of the equation because to scale any company, you can't have cash flying around. We would have drivers who were stealing some of the cash. We were having, I mean, just a lot of different difficulties. And so we incorporated digitalized payment structures that eventually led to the QR codes that y'all are familiar with and just fine-tuned and optimized the business to what it is today. So you were able to really, I mean, you had started at least two ventures in, in college and had you know, built this business acumen and understanding and just some of these basics that you all are learning today. And then you saw this opportunity and it was like, oh wait, they're not doing all this stuff, simple stuff. And you were able to go, you know, get, you use those lessons from your first two ventures to really get Fetty off the ground. Exactly. What's interesting is I never quit on any of the business, prior business ventures. It always transitioned to where I saw a better opportunity. Evolution. Yeah, evolution, which is interesting. So I never, in retro, you know, in hindsight, Obviously, it wasn't a good idea, but with the roadside assistance, I never said, okay, this isn't going to work. Let me try something else. It was, all right, we're working on this, but now this other opportunity came up that I think is better, and just naturally, we started focusing on that. And then with the chargers, this came along, and then naturally, we started focusing on that, where once, I mean, if you keep on doing that, eventually, you hit something that you realize, all right, there's probably nothing better than this, and I've hit this gold mine. And then... I would say that I was very blessed to run into this opportunity because I came into a business that already gave me the validation that customers wanted this type of service. So product market fit to an extent was already proven. And, and I think that's one thing that, that, that really helped me. And, and it's probably the hardest in any business is getting your first hundred customers. If you can create an operation that's providing a service or a business already to someone, at that point, you're just evolving it, fine-tuning it, figuring out ways that it can scale and grow into more colleges, more cities, which is a lot easier than building that initial foundation. And how long were you just in College Station? So we were in there for a year. For a year? For a year, it was running this party bus company. And then after a year, probably after six, seven months, we were beginning development of the app, of the application, because we wanted to make it into an application. The convenience of rideshare like Uber and Lyft, but with these high capacity vehicles. And then probably at that 12 month mark, our beta was ready, launched it out, complete disaster app did not work at all. I remember I was driving the bus and for reference, my partner was in California at the time and he was building the app, building all the technology. And he told me, all right, the developer said it's good to go. This is the first weekend, let's give it a shot. And so we do some marketing already to our existing customers, so it was really easy. Hey, download the app. This is the new way to, to order these buses. The first group, I think it was a sorority group. I show up in the bus. They pull out the app. They scan the QR code. This like really ratchet-looking error code shows up, and it just <laughs> did not work. And so they asked me, they said, hey, did it work? I'm getting this error, error code. 
And I said, yep, it worked. Hop on <laughs> in and everyone gets in. We lost money on that ride, obviously, because we did not get any payment. But then after, after two or three weeks, fixing those bugs, then we started to get some money coming in. Save, save the experience. Yeah, exactly. You know, keep the customers happy. Cool, and who's the coolest person that's ridden in a Fetty, to your knowledge, besides me? We've had the mayor of Austin ride, we've had Vince Young ride, Ooh. Jason Kidd has ridden, if you know Danny Duncan, two-turn Tony, if you know these influencer guys. But probably at this stage, it's tough, unless they post it on social media, there's so many trips and passengers that I, Maybe there's some cooler people that I haven't seen on the back end yet. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And then you did Y Combinator, right? And what, you know, what led to that? And yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, so what led to that is that we really needed money. We were burning a lot of cash um, with driver incentives. We launched in Austin. We launched in Lubbock with Texas Tech. And in order to, to kind of enter these markets, we burn cash for about four to five months and then the market turns profitable. And so we had kind of overextended ourselves, but rightly so, we needed growth, but that led to needing cash. And so we applied two times, or well, yeah, we applied two times, didn't get in both those times. We applied a third time and finally got in, which if you're not familiar, it's in a accelerator. They've invested in Cruise, Instacart, DoorDash, uh, Dropbox, a lot of these big San Franciscan name, household name companies, Airbnb as well. And in our batch, which is kind of the batch of acceptance groups, it was a 1.2 for 1.25% acceptance rate. So companies from all around the world are trying to get in there. Obviously the network is huge and then they do come with half a million check. And what did you learn through the application process of, you know, anything that by the end of it, you're like, oh, that really helped us in our application? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the things that helped was the ability to execute a concise pitch. You really have a short amount of time similar to what happened just prior with the two minute pitches. And what that does, it forces you to be deliberate in what you're saying and forthcoming in terms of what the problem, the solution, why you're the person for the solution, and what the investor, what the accelerator in, in, in this situation can expect from, from a huge success. So I think that's one of the biggest things. Granted, the first, the first time we applied was during COVID, so I don't blame them for not believing in group transportation during COVID. <laughs> Second time was a year after, or six months, you know, or a year after COVID, which I still don't blame them for not knowing if things are gonna be back to normal. Third time, they were like, all right, let's just give these guys a chance. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So a lot about the pitch yeah. and I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, oh my gosh, why don't they give us longer to pitch? You know, and I'm just like the opportunity, you know, people don't, important people that are making decisions, they don't have a lot of time, you know, and you just, you've got to be able to communicate it simply and quickly. And that's like the hardest thing to do, yeah. right? And so if you had an hour, it'd be a lot easier, but it's hard to get anyone's attention for an hour. Okay, and then through, what was the program like once you got, the, was it in person or? It was, it was hybrid. hybrid, so they had some events that we went into in Sonoma and in San Francisco, but it was, I was really, because typically prior to COVID, it was in person, so you would have to go there for, for three months, they give you money to use part of the 500,000 to, to live there and whatnot, and it was, we were really lucky to have that hybrid style because we had this operation here that we had to run, and so that's another thing too is that we're one of the few Y Combinator companies 
that is in a pure software company. Typically, the reason why they make people go live out there is because it's, they're typically software companies that can be worked on from remote from anywhere. So yeah, it was a hybrid. It was a good experience. Met a lot of great people. I mean, the people they put you in contact with and network you with uh, are no jokes. I mean, people who have built multi-billion dollar companies, who have invested in multi-billion dollar companies, um, who if, if you say, hey, can you connect me with the Uber co-founder, they've got them on their phone texting. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest things is that, you know, if you need something that they can probably know someone or know someone who knows someone. How, how'd your demo day go? It was good. So from that, we, we raised about a 1.5 additional. So from the whole Y Combinator experience, we took in about 2 million, which we needed to expand, build out our operations and kind of transition the business into a more scalable oper operation, which is what has resulted now. So I would say it was good. That's one thing that they're also known for is that having that YC name behind your company legitimizes you a lot, separates you. Like I said, it's a one point two five percent acceptance rate. They've got a lot of billion dollar companies that they've essentially were the very first investors in. And so once you've got that name behind you, you can go to investors and they're at least the partners are going to take a meeting with you because they're going to be interested because, hey, if YC saw, saw something, there might be something there. And have you raised any more money since then? We're putting together a, another $2 million raise. 500000 of that is equity. 1.5 is, is debt. We've started to mess with debt a lot more because we've kind of fine-tuned what our go-to-market strategy and costs are. So we know if we take this 1.5, it'll allow us to open in four or five new markets, at which point after four to five months, we turn profitable and can pay back the monthly costs on that debt, which saves us equity, less dilution, and is, is more readily available in this market. So let's, yeah, let's talk about, you know, the scalability and, you know, how you're financing your growth and you have a lot of vans, right? Yeah. And are they your vans or do you? So good question. Them? Yeah. We, we don't own any vans. You don't own any vans. No. What about that first van? You used to oh yeah. The bus. Yeah. You the buses. Yeah. No, well, we ended up selling them to another, to, to an operator who puts oh, them yeah. on our platform. So oh, nice. yeah, not even those we own anymore. And so that's kind of one of the things that I was touching up on is, is once you kind of get your customers and figure out if you have a business that, or not, then you can start fine tuning things to make it uh, either investable or just scalable. And so, for example, at the beginning, we owned these buses while trying to build the app, work on marketing. During the week, my week would be, would be packed because I had to take these buses to the mechanic shop, right? I mean, we were driving them everywhere. They, these were old buses, you know, we couldn't afford nice vans like we do now. Um, and it was just this whole operation where we were doing ops, managing drivers, dealing with insurance, all this different stuff while trying to be a software company as well, trying to be a platform. And so what we did is we said, okay, we need to distance ourselves from this aspect of the business. And we created something called a PSP program, Passenger Service Provider Program. It's a similar model we took to Amazon's DSP program, Delivery Service Partner Program, in which we work with these entities who either already have these type of vehicles that we need or want to get involved in a business with us, almost like a franchise. And so they'll purchase these vehicles. They'll take care of the, the driver management, the insurance, the vehicle cost, the financing, everything like that. And then they'll, they'll just put it on our platform. 
They earn a, a percentage of the revenue plus a rental fee from the drivers. We earn a percentage of the revenue and they essentially take care of that whole side of the business while we just work on the platform. And for a startup, that's incredibly important because we don't have the funds to go out and hire managers for each city in terms of watching over all of the uh, vehicles, hiring people to go take them to the mecha mechanic shop, um, dealing with the costs of insurance, a lot of these different things. And so we knew that in order for this to be scalable, especially with the funds we had, we had to be savvy and, and create a model where we're taking a lot of those costs out of the situation. And I think that's one of the be beautiful things about having to bootstrap, because maybe if I could raise money very easily, we would have never run into that because we didn't need to. Maybe we would still own these vans. It would be millions and millions of dollars on the balance sheet in terms of liability. Our insurance would be a hundred times more. We'd have to deal with people with, with the, you know, dealing with everything that comes with drivers not showing up or liability claims or all this different stuff. But because we didn't have the funds, we needed to figure out a way to, to kind of make it more scalable for us. And so we don't own any of the vans right now. We work with our partners who purchase these fleets and it's been a very good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And it just takes a lot of risk out of the, the right. equation and uncertainty of, oh, this van might not work. And it allows us to focus on the software, which right. if we're going to be successful, it needs our full focus. Right. Then how about the drivers? Who's, are the, they your drivers or how do you have that set up? Yeah, so they're contracted out by the PSPs. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, so, so they're contracted out. They pay a weekly rental fee to the PSP for their van. And, uh, and they earn money on our platform much more than they would with Uber and Lyft just because of the nature of the business. And so our driver turn, which in the rideshare industry is unheard of, is we probably are, our retention rate is probably 95% with drivers. So. How many of these, you call them PSPs? Mm -hmm. How many PSPs do you have? And I guess how many, uh, are, are they just servicing you or they're, uh, how, how do they handle other Yeah, so, so they're just servicing yeah. us. They're yeah. just putting their vehicles on our platform. In total, I would probably say we have about maybe co closing in on 30 PSPs. Yeah. But some PSPs have two vans. Got it. Some have 25. Got it. Right, so it's, it's pretty diverse in that sense. But if I wanted to go buy some vans and like start one of these companies, you, we could talk. And exactly, yeah. And then we've seen these people put together, these high net worth individuals, look at the opportunity, finance some vehicles, put them on our platform and generate cash flow like that. We could maybe all go in on, on one. Longhorn startup PSP, yeah. there you go. Yeah. We, we actually had some recent UT grads become PSPs. Really? They've got, they, they've got vans in the Austin market and the, and the Baton Rouge market, and they're closing on maybe like 10 vehicles now. Cool, Yeah. nice. All right, and how did you get connected with Capital Factory? So after College Station, we really, we really you know, figured this was a, a company that, that could be replicated. And, and at that point, it was up to us to decide where do we want to build this company, either San Francisco or Austin. San Francisco, too expensive, further away from everything in our current operations, and so we chose Austin. Came here to Austin, first thing we did is start meeting with investors, um, which led us to the introduction of Capital Factory. Um, got connected with y'all, joined y'all, which has been a huge blessing and a great success in our eyes. And we've, one of our best advisors has come through an introduction that Capital Factory did, Joseph Kopser. Oh, yeah. One of our board directors, very influential with Capital Factory, Brian Minnell. So a lot of these people were connected to us through Capital Factory. And I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, we were just Two kids, didn't know anybody, 
And once we joined Capital Factory, we had the ability to start knowing people in Austin and around Texas. Yeah, Joseph Kopser had a transportation startup of his own back, back in the day. Yeah, Joseph, he sold his mobility platform for $100 million to Mercedes in 2012, 14, around there, maybe 14. And so when we heard about that, we said, well, well this is the perfect person for us to you know, exchange ideas with and, and, and get mentorship from. So we got a, a meeting through Capital Factory with him, and, and the rest is history. Yep, Joseph, when he started Ride Scout, which was originally called Going My Way, he was the professor of military science at UT. And he actually is an army veteran and went to West Point and learned all about logistics in the, in the military and then created this app to help people figure out their logistics downtown. And, and he is also our advisor, one of our top advisors, yeah. special advisors at Capital Factory, helping us figure out our defense vertical and a lot of the stuff going on on this floor. So, mm -hmm. very nice. All right, and you know, where are you going next? You know, you mentioned you raising a little money. Like, what are the big milestones you're focused on in the next, you know, 12, 24 months? Yeah, I think the name of the game is just national domination. You know, it's making sure that every group around the country has this service at their disposal. So right now we're in Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, College Station, Lubbock, Baton Rouge, and Tuscaloosa. And, you know, starting off at College Station, we had hopes that it could be replicated. We had a go to, good go-to-market strategy, and we found in Austin that it could be replicated, and it was successful. And so, at that point, it was just going city to city. We know now what our costs are to enter into a market. We know how much money we need, how much we will need to burn. So we've got a, the good, we, we've got good data to, to kind of help us make these informed decisions how much we need to raise, whether it be debt or equity, to expand into new markets. And that's really what we're focused on 100% right now. You know, there's a, we're always working on new features, on new things, but it's important not to get too distracted with, oh, let's add this really cool new, because we've got some really nice features that we want to add that I think would be phenomenal and really get people talking. But we have the, the ability to refrain from that and understand what we've built right now is solving a problem for a lot of people and we need to get this out to as many people as we can once we've kind of reached a good scale where we're in you know a lot if not all of the major cities plus a lot of the college towns then we can start playing around with different ideas and, and adding new new features and whatnot but we're soon entering and i think the milestone is really entering into that state where we don't need to raise anymore where the cash flow from operations is just fueling new market launches which I think after this this new expansion, come January, uh, we'll be in a pretty close position to do that. And we haven't announced it yet, but I'll announce it here in January. We're launching in Houston. We're launching in Tucson with Arizona, cool. University of Arizona. We're launching in Phoenix and Scottsdale with ASU and just the huge city there, and potentially throwing in Athens and Atlanta and Georgia. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Are yeah. you you got to send boots on the ground to the market, or how do you do that? What What's really fun too is that typically our boots on the ground are our PSVs. Right. So they're out there helping. They're out there hiring the drivers. They're out there uh, doing some marketing work for us. And then um, we've got our ambassador army that goes out there as well and, and does the, a lot of the work for us. And so that just goes to my point: figuring out efficient ways to do this without. If I want to launch in one market, not only do I have to worry about the cost of the operation, but now I've got to worry about, I've got to hire five people and add them to payroll. It's, it's always about finding these things to make things more efficient. Yep, 
And I, uh, did you know I was at Favor? It was my first job. I did. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so we you know, had a people-intensive business like you and people, you know, similar partners were, were individuals, but it was, we had boots on the ground. I was actually, I was a market launcher and would go to these different cities and it was much like, you know, we were talking a lot like this and, you know, we launched 10 or 20 cities outside of Texas and but we, our burn was too high and we couldn't compete. And after we launched all these cities, we had to go shut them all down, which was not the fun part. And we, you know, overnight, thousands of delivery runners didn't have jobs anymore, employees laid off, and it was just too capital intensive to go, you know, compete for $5 a pop on a delivery run. And it was really hard. And luckily we were first to market in Texas and we did very well here and we didn't have nearly as much competition. And for us, it was like, Texas has not nearly as much congestion, like the less traffic, well, this was 10 years ago, relatively less traffic, well, you know, parking's easier. And so we did well here and sold, but you know, it, so it sounds like you've got this really efficient scaling where you don't have to really, you know, build employees, but you can have partners and stuff that's a little easier to, to ramp up and down based on the demand. Certainly. And it's also identifying things in the fundamental nature of the business that are efficient as well. And I'll give you an example. One reason why this company is such a great company to build is because if you think about the nature of group transportation, when I spend money to convert one customer, I'm also converting 10, 11, 12 who also experience the service. And so that customer acquisition cost goes a lot down, whereas Uber, Lyft, or, or Instacart, whenever you convert one customer, only that one customer for the most time uses that service. And so that's been a big thing where because of that virality aspect to group transportation, if I convince you, Nick, to try out this service, I'm also convincing eight of your friends to try it because you convinced them. So that word of mouth and that exponential virality led to that exponential week over week growth, which just made our, our job so much easier where we, we weren't having to, to, to say, okay, we need to raise a million dollars and 500,000 of that has to go to Facebook ads or Instagram ads to get customers, right? And so that's one thing that made it very efficient. Another thing too is that our vehicles are branded. So we've got these free rolling billboards running around town, right? That we don't have to, I mean, if, you, if there was a service that charged that type of advertisement, we'd be bankrupt, right? And so it's the, a lot of these different things that really helped make this company doable, especially with the funds that we had. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and open it up to some questions from students. I'm thankful I don't get to pick tonight because Matt's gonna walk around. And yeah, we've got plenty of time. Hello, entrepreneurs and everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this Startup Focus podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, then make plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't-miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th. Be at the Startup Track south by southwest pitch or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make march magic in austin so special south by southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas new business models new markets new innovators and new talent as well as make some incredible new connections always find the most information about south by southwest at www.sxsw.com
terms of target market and your customer base, it deals a lot with college students and like drinking. How do you think that's affected your like brand image and your ability to raise funding and just all that sort of issues? Yeah, very good question. At, at the beginning of the, especially when we go, started going out to investors and, and pitching them, you don't want to go to them and say, hey, this is for just for college students to get to the bars, even though that's really what it was. We would go to them and say, hey, this is getting people, you know, either a night out or commuting, right, or off-site co corporate transportation. We weren't really doing that at, at that point then, but to investors, especially investors who, I mean, they're looking a lot of times nowadays for B2B software or for something that, that is, is more than just a, a college market. So in the beginning of those days, we really strayed away from it. I mean, even our website, our social media was very more corporate until we realized that, you know, whether we said it was for enterprises or whether we said it was, because at the beginning of this, we really couldn't raise that much money. It was friends and family. We had party buses. I mean, you go to a VC and say, hey, I've got party buses. Do you want to invest? They're going to laugh you out the room, which they were to us. And so we kind of made that decision just to lean in on it right like this is what our service is being used for this is what people like about it we're gonna we're gonna target essentially our target market and that's one thing that i think has really allowed us to grow and kind of have this brand image that we have right i think uber is looked at as a lot more corporate almost like the facebook now like an older out of touch company which is great for kind of that demographic if their employees need transportation or whatever but we're kind of looked at like that younger more fun kind of guy who, who, if you want to have a good time, you take a Fetty, right? And so I think that's important to, to understand that you never want to tailor your business toward an investor. You're always going to find success if you tailor your business toward the customer. And now we do plenty. We do weddings, we do bachelorette parties, we do offsite corporate events. We actually do it now. And that's just a result of the word of mouth that, that's come primarily from the college market. And We've embraced it, and if you think about it, while, they're, while the market of individual people outside of college is much greater, the college market has a much higher frequency, if that makes sense, where college students aren't going out once a month, maybe for a bachelorette party or an off-site corporate event. You guys are going out once a week, right? Sometimes using Fetty three times a night, right? Whereas these older people, let's just agree, they're pretty boring, and they're not in the Fetty spirit all the time. So I think that's a big thing that's allowed us uh, to grow and scale is just uh, accepting that nature. It seems like it would eliminate a lot of drunk driving too, or it's before. Oh yeah, you know, oh yeah. I mean, and, and we always say it, and we really do mean it, is that you know we're removing a lot of drunk driving and we're creating these phenomenal experiences. Sometimes we miss the mark. Sometimes the van is late. Sometimes, which always going to happen, but we're always working on. But for the most part, you're getting to where you need to go with your friends. And it's just creating that experience, which in today's day is a huge part of our economy, whether it's Airbnb, you know, improving the experience of home, home staying or home sharing. We're doing the same thing with transportation, where I've seen a lot of feedback where part of the night experience now is also the Fetty transportation, right? Where it's not just, oh, yeah, let's get an Uber and, and we'll go to the party. And that's the party. Now people are almost, it's an extension of the night, it's an extension of the event, it's an extension of the party where, hey, the Fetty is here, we're still, we're, we'll, the party continues. <laughs> Some of the most fun I've ever had is in a party bus, yeah. in those vans, to be honest. Awesome, who's next? 
I know you briefly talked about like your long-term plan. Um, companies like YouTube, they say that they were able to get there because they were acquired by Google. Like long-term, are you planning to like go public or like do you have hopes or plans to like be acquired by like bigger like companies like Google or what is your like big goal plan at basically? Yeah, yeah I think that's always, and one thing that whenever investors ask us this, what, you know, what's the, in 10 years, what is this gonna look like? The answer you give is always gonna be BS because you never know what's coming around the corner. But sitting here, I will tell you that right now we don't have any direct competitors. It's a, this is a very hard business to build. It's not a software where you go into your dorm room, you code up some stuff and all of a sudden you have a platform. Marketplaces, for, unfortunately, are very hard to build. Fortunately for us, now that we've built it, creates a very strong moat for us where it's very hard to get into this field. It's not a, an attractive thing for investors, rideshare at the moment. It wasn't 2012, 2014, 2018. It isn't right now, so it's harder for people to raise money to even try and compete with us. So we feel very secure in terms of competition. We feel very secure in terms of capital right now, in terms of our go-to-market. So with that being said, I feel very confident that we can grow this to a very close billion-dollar valuation with the current strategies that we have right now, which is just replicating this in as many markets as we can. After that, you start diving into, okay, well, can we start doing advertisements on the app like Uber does? And that's an extra 150 million a year, you know, uh, potentially. Can we start incorporating different social aspects, right? Whether it's a, a social media type thing or a feed type thing where we're incorporating the data that we have in terms of Fetty trips and sharing that with your friends or whatnot. Different things like that you start getting into which fundamentally change the whole type of business that we are. Right now, to, to his point, our main thing is we're providing young adults, college students, good group transportation. We're also taking care of special events, concerts, sporting events, weddings, bachelor, bachelorette parties. Maybe it evolves. Um, into more of this corporate side that is a huge market as well with park and ride employee commuting solutions where we can use our vans as well for companies who want to get their employees to the office together without them having to pay for driving, tolls, gas, all that. There's different ways that this company can go. And I've learned one thing is to let the market dictate where it goes, right? So right now we know what works. We're going to replicate that. We're going to try a few things. I don't see us having to sell it anytime soon. IPO maybe is there if we can incorporate a lot of different things into the business. It would have to be bigger than what it is now. But yeah, that's a nuanced answer, but it's true. What is the exact cost of going into a new market? Like you mentioned, if you're not buying the buses and all that, what is the exact cost for- For a large metro like DFW or Austin, it's about 400,000. What does that go into actually though? goes into, raise your hand if you've heard of God mode. Okay, so, so that's one of the things that we use to enter into a new market. It's an account upgrade that we give to people that allows them to ride for discounted or free. And who eats that cost? It's us. So the drivers and the PSPs get paid as if that's real money, but it really it's coming from us, not the customers. So it, rider incentives to create word of mouth and that virality is one thing. The other thing is driver incentives, right? So in a marketplace, if you think about it, whenever you enter in a, into a, a market, there's no demand and there's no supply yet. So in order to create demand, you need supply. You need at least 10 vans in the city waiting while we build up the demand, right? So because if we go into a new market, we, we tell you about Fetty, you go onto the app, there's no vans. 
you're probably not going to try it again. So the driver incentives allow us to pay those drivers to stay on the platform in the city, even if they're not getting paid. So some of the burn is from that. Um, and then it goes the other side as well. So once we've got that supply and we're paying that supply, we need to make sure we're not just wasting money and there's actual demand. So then we put in those rider incentives, those account upgrades, um, those partnerships, and build that site up. And so over the course of about four to five months, we're playing this uh, teeter-totter game where we're building up supply, putting money into that, and then we need to chill out, we need to put more money into demand, then we need to chill out, put more into supply so that there aren't these huge nuances where nobody can get a ride or there's huge surge, surge pricing. About four to five months, we become, we reach a level uh, where we can take away all of that. We can start taking away the account upgrades and rider incentives, and we can start taking away the, because people are gonna ride because they like the service, and then we can start taking away the driver incentives because they can just stay on, online and they're making money. So about four to five months, we can take those off and then we're running profitable. Hi, uh, my name is Veer. I'm actually, I'm, I'm really excited that you're here because I am involved in a tangentially similar business. So what was your process of developing your go-to-market strategy and how did you guys implement your ambassador program? Because with our business, we're like a high school parking service. Um, so what we've had trouble with is we had really great success at our first school, but we, we have had trouble scaling to other markets on the demand side. Yeah, so, so the go-to-market strategy, um, the supply, we've, always, we've never had an issue because if we can get the demand, the supply will come. People will want to buy vans because it'll make them money. So it's always, in a lot of marketplaces as well, it's always about the demand. And so how did we create the demand? One thing that, that's just really easy, that made it really easy in this business is that, like I said, there really just wasn't a good solution for these groups. I mean, raise your hand if you can think of a different option, but either you were splitting up and taking two to three Ubers, Lyfts, or more, or personal vehicles, or you had to make sure you reserved a party bus days or weeks in advance, pay a three to five hour minimum, with no payment flexibility. Like there, there really wasn't a good solution. And, and that's one of the things why it's been so successful is that we're not looking, we're really disrupting. We're not looking at a business and just trying to create a bigger version of that business. We're creating a new business entirely. And so your go-to-market strategy is gonna be a lot easier if it's a real, if it's a real problem that needs solving. Because essentially at that point, it's just making people aware of it and the rest, the rest does the job, and word of mouth is a huge aspect of it. Now, actual strategies that we did is gonna, a lot of it really is this God mode thing we did. So the idea came after I watched the Fire Festival documentary. Raise your hand if you're familiar with Firefest. Okay, it was essentially this concert that this guy, Billy McFarlane, put together. That was a disaster, but the marketing was phenomenal. It was a disaster because the marketing was phenomenal and demand was outrageous. And the way they did it is that they got these very famous celebrities and influencers to all post an Instagram picture at the same exact time of an orange box, literally just an orange box, plain orange with Firefest tacked. So at a certain time and day, all these celebrities did it. Haley Bieber, it was like, I mean, it was a lot of big people. And these people who follow all these accounts you know, if you follow Haley Bieber, you follow this other model, it was all interconnected, was scrolling through their feed and all of a sudden these, all these orange boxes were showing up and people were clicking on it, what is this? And it garnered attention. 
And the what I took from that is that people really want to be involved in what other people of higher status are, are involved with. So we were going to do something like that locally at our college, and we thought, okay, who are the influential trendsetters, whatever you want to call them at our colleges? That go out a lot, and, and you may disagree or agree with it, but we thought it was sororities and fraternities, sport teams, bigger orgs, like at AM we have the men's orgs, freshman orgs, stuff like that. And, and so we went to these guys and girls and said, hey, we're going to give you this thing called, we were going to originally do something like Instagram, but we even thought of a better idea where we're going to give you this account upgrade called God Mode. And it's only for you because you're the coolest at the university. All right, and uh, you ride for free. Other people might be mad at you because you have this account, but it's only for you. And we would go to these universities and they would eat it up. They were like, oh, this is awesome. Now when they're with a group, and they're not always just traveling with their sorority or fraternity, now when they're with, now when they're with a group, what do you think they're gonna do? Hey, I have God mode, let's try Fetty, right? They're not gonna get excited about this free account. And, and, and even in the development of the app, whenever this person's account gets upgraded, it turns to gold, it says God mode, it's shimmering, it's the whole deal. It, it, whenever we upgrade it, a, a pop-up comes up on the app that says, hey, Sarah, or whatever the, the name is, you've been noticed as a trendsetter in your community and, and all this thing. And from there, it just blew up where everyone was like, hey, what is this thing? Why do you have it? Why don't I have it? It started getting talked about. People started using it, and, and it really took off from there. And, uh, and like I was pointing out you know, a little bit prior as well is that you add fuel to the fire with whenever Sarah tells her friends about it, now we've got 12 people who know about Fetty that tell 12 of their friends. And after two, three, four months, a lot of the people at the university, at least the ones who are going to go out and use Fetty, know about it. It reminds me of some fun we did at Favor. The whole, everything you're talking about reminds me a lot of that, but we, it wasn't as cool. Like people kind of ordered delivery together, but not quite as much. But we did influencer parties when we launched and we would invite all the kind of similar type of influential people. It was a little different for us, but we would throw a party and we'd give them all $50 Favor credit that they had to use at the party. And we would basically, everyone at the party would favor their own food and everyone would come up and there'd be a bunch of favor runners and like it'd be very visible and everyone would talk about it. And yeah, it's all about getting people to talk about what you're doing and especially, yeah, the, the folks that everyone's looking up to right in your marketplace. Hi, I'm Chloe. I know you touched on like kind of how you built up Fetty, like you were one of the people like driving the buses around and all that, but what is your current like day-to-day -day role look like? And then what is the co-founder's day-to-day role? It's still a startup, so everyone wears multiple hats. Full-time, we're seven, seven people. We've got offshore development team as well. But in terms of full-time here, it's seven people. And we're, we're, doing, we're transporting millions of passengers, hundreds of thousands of trips, seven-plus cities. And so as you can imagine, we're each doing a lot of things. And so my role has definitely turned from kind of, uh, of that entrepreneurial hustling, driving, you know, all this on the ground, while I still want to make sure I'm in touch with that, it's come into a more of a delegation role. So it's making sure that our marketing is on track, our sales is on track, you know, everything of that sort. 
Yeah, we, we, a lot of it is the finances, the investment, board meetings with our board members. It, it's really just all over the place and it's gonna be like that for a while. You know, a CEO who gets hired into a public company is just gonna have a much different job than a CEO at a startup. So really the easiest answer to that is I just do whatever needs to be done in that moment. So if, if demand is, is lacking, I'm working with the marketing team and the sales team very hard to put in certain partnerships, work on our ambassador program, work on our outbound deal, you know, funnel, different stuff like that. If supply is suffering, I'm meeting with PSPs, I'm doing active outbound to look for other operators who want to join on our platform. If capital is looking frosty, then I'm working on pitches. I'm going out, trying to raise capital, whether debt or equity. And so really it's just where the business needs me. So one week it could be something, the other week it's something else. And I think that's one of the things that people don't, a lot of people romanticize entrepreneurship, but it's a very stressful job because if something's going wrong, you have, you're the person who has to deal with it. And a lot of times, at least something is going wrong all the time. So you keep talking about PSPs. Are I know you said that the drivers are like on a contract. Do you also have contracts with PSPs? And what happens when they run out? Do you plan on like what's your length of contract and how do you plan on like reapproaching negotiations when you get to that point? Good question. Yeah, so we're we've got the PSPs is like a independent contractor of Fetty. Um, and yeah, it's really not set up like that as a number of years. It's we've got this opportunity that makes the money and they can't make it anywhere else. So it's just this mutually ongoing thing. They can get out of it whenever, we can get out of it whenever. Fortunately for us, there's just a lot of people who want to make money and we've got a good way to make money right now. And so that's kind of what I mentioned in terms of marketplaces. If you can figure out demand, supply is easy, right? Because I mean, if they can make money, people in this country are always going to want to make money, right? Yeah. So I remember hearing that when you first got started, you had two separate transportation companies, and you would test your ideas out on one company to see what you wanted to do with your main company. And I was wondering how you test ideas out now that you're much bigger. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So, so what she's talking about is whenever we bought that party bus business from those two students. After a month or so, we put in an offer to buy the only other competing party bus from two other students in College Station. And we bought them. And instead of merging the two companies together, we kept them separate. Each one only had a van, so this was just, or a bus, so this was just two buses. But we kept them separate. We kept the customer base separate. And what we would do is, Obviously, we had to grow and evolve this business into a scalable thing that people wanted to use. And so we would try a, a tactic on, on one company, see if it worked. Both companies did it. If it didn't, and we saw that these customers were going to the other competitor, which they didn't know was still owned by us, then we knew it didn't work. So I'll give you an example. We had to take cash out of the situation for this company to scale. We really just thought, okay, let's just see if people will prepay. But in a way where we took their credit card, and we didn't run it until we knew how many people got on with the driver telling us. And so we, we did that, and a lot of people went to the other company because they didn't want to be the ones to put their credit card up, right? They didn't know how many people were going to show up, and we really were servicing this trip for free in the hopes that, number one, this card didn't get declined, and it went through. It just really wasn't efficient, and so we scrapped that idea. 
but that's an example of us trying different things, which eventually led to the QR scanning that we see now. And so, to your point of how we do it now, we've got one thing that we have so many users that whenever we hear from five, 10% of them about an issue they have or something that they would want to see implemented in the app, with so many users, we feel pretty confident that's the right move, listening to the customer like that. So a lot of the evolution and additions or removal of features have been just from listening to our users, which when we first started probably wasn't the right move just because we had so little. Um, so that's, I think that's a big thing. We could probably do better on A-B testing, right? So that's where we release a feature but only to a thousand users and we see if that works, which you start getting a little bit more complicated, but that's something down the road that we could start doing. But for right now, we've just been listening to our users and acting accordingly to that. Raise your hand if you've used a FETI outside of Austin. Anybody? Oh yeah, where'd you use it? OU? Okay, cool. Okay, for, for the Texas OU game, okay. I was going to be like, we're not an OU, so use somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's yeah. got a Yeah, I'm going to have to ask you who you use. Right. Yeah. So I know a lot of people, including myself, have like the approach of like, I have an idea, and then I'm just going to pitch to investors, and I'm going to get money and use that money to like make other people like actually make the idea come true. And that doesn't seem like something that, that's not something you've done for like any of your, pre like it seems like you're always on the ground, like actually doing it yourself. What, did, what do you think is the best approach for college founders like us to make our like startup dream come true? And like, how should we approach that? Yeah, so, so definitely there was, I think it was Brian from Airbnb who had a recent interview or, or somebody, but the way they framed it is that whenever you have a startup, the, the employees can love your product and love working on it and really want to build it great, but the founders are going to be the biological parents, right? This is their baby no matter what the eight hour, I mean, the shift never ends. I mean, you could be out with your friends, you're thinking about the business, you're trying to figure out ways to improve it, how to build it, how to work on it. It's just so, so statistically, the business is gonna have a much higher chance if you're on the ground, if you're actually building it, and if you've got multiple people building it. If you've got a co-founder, if you've got multiple co-founders working on it and treating it as their baby, it's gonna have a much higher chance of success. And so. My advice is really to figure out a way where you're the one building it and, and maybe, for example, it was me on the ground working with the buses, hiring the drivers, figuring out how this thing needs to be managed and built, but my co-founder is the one, our, our CTO, who was the one who was directing the offshore team, right? So uh, maybe wasn't actively developing all of it, but was the person who was testing it, who was telling them how it needs to be built, what it needs to do with all their passion. and so. You can't just say, and I, there was a point at the beginning where I think we did make the mistake where we went to an offshore company that we'd previously worked with and we said, hey, we're doing this business and we said, we need, a, we need an app like Uber, go build it for us. And it's a complete disaster. I mean, you know, they're building it's just something that doesn't tailor towards it and you really have to understand and go in. And honestly, offshore developers are known for having the issue where you can't be too broad. Right? Whether it's a language barrier or just culturally, you have to go in and really tell them what it needs to do, how it needs to work, which I think is a pain, but has led us to really be, really be strategic and 
decisive in what we do and how we do it, which I think helps out a lot. I was wondering, in the future, do you have any plans of taking your company like Fetty or like more into like a sustainable route in terms of like positioning or strategy? Because like right now, obviously, with Fetty, like we're, you're minimizing the number of cars like on the road. And also it's with college students, it's minimizing like the amount of like drunk driving and all that stuff. So in terms of like, would you have any future plans of making it like a B Corp or going electric in the future? And if that works with electric, would you be considering the same model as you do that you don't own the current vehicles, or with electric, would you have to, would you be considering like buying those vehicles? Yeah, so, so speaking on that, as a matter of fact, we'll include our first five electric vehicles into our Alabama market. Our PSP there is buying the new Ford e-transit vans there. And the reason being is that it does come out to be cheaper in terms of the gas, you know, down down the road and, and how much we utilize it, the electricity versus gas, and the pricing is now competitive to where it makes sense. And, you know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting conversation you bring up because it's, you know, should we do that if it doesn't make sense for us financially, but it makes sense PR-wise? And I think that's one thing to be careful of, and it goes to the, what he brought up, like PR-wise, it makes much better sense if Fetty is this corporate thing that is you know, for everyone and corporate employees and we're doing all this stuff, you, you have to be careful trying to build a company for people who aren't your target market. So if I'm buying these electric vehicles because it makes sense for PR, but I need to charge you guys more to make up for the margins, that's not gonna help the business grow. Fortunately, we are in a place where the costs have come down substantially for electric vehicles to where it makes sense. And if it makes sense, we're all for it, we'll do it. But if it hindered the business, um, I think it's something to, to, to make sure you don't get caught up in. Are, are you thinking about self-driving vans? Self-driving vans, I mean, we'll see. We'll see if we get there. Yeah, the pros and cons, the pros are, I mean, if we had these vans 24 seven, it's, it's why Uber tried to build their own. I mean, for a ride share, it's, it, it, it changes the whole game if drivers are out of the equation, unfortunately. But I think also, that's what makes the one thing about Fetty really nice as well is that we've got it for the most part, a great set of drivers that add to that experience that I talk about is so valuable. So, you know, when the time comes, we'll take a look at it. But right now we're, we're happy with where it is. I, I did hear that Cruise, who has a couple hundred self-driving cars, have, they are using God mode around town. Yeah, I saw that and then they're trying to do, I saw some TikToks with it. Um, it's gotta be flattering, they ripped you off. I think that was obviously your idea first. Well, did they call it that? Yeah, that, yeah I think so. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we're not worried about them. <laughs> no, they're very tiny. Yeah. <laughs> you can only fit a few people. All right, uh, any other questions? All right, got a little time. So I guess a question I hear about a lot of startup ideas is like, why now, right? So why couldn't have Fetty been started in 2017 or 2015 or 2012? And is this even like the right way of looking at things? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd agree with that whole notion. I definitely, I mean, investors are gonna ask you why now? And so I'll give you an example why I'm not sure if I agree with it, because we're past the rideshare hype. We're past the rideshare phase. There's not that much capital going into rideshare companies the same way it was when Uber and Lyft came onto the scene, right? Where if you said you could, you could raise $5 million on just a pitch deck for a rideshare company that only transported any women or only men or whatever it is, 
that's not the case anymore because that hype has kind of come down. Lyft has had its issues. A lot of companies have gone bankrupt. The margins have been in question. So you could argue, well, now isn't the good time. It's already passed. But you could make the argument that now's the best time because Uber has paved the way regulatory-wise, where we don't have to spend millions of dollars in lobbyists for the taxi industry to kind of create these laws. You could make the argument that now is actually the best time because we don't have to worry about competitors coming in left and right, right? Because capital is harder to raise for this type of business. And so there's always pros and cons to the, the time and stage of, of what you're building. I will say if you've got the determination, I think that's the biggest thing that, that counts in terms of success. I, the other thing I hear is like innovators pay the price, you know, and there's a lot of social networks before Facebook, you know, a lot of money invested in that. And, and, you know, and so I think it's, yeah, like it, there's pros and cons to being early and late to market. And I think you just got to play your strengths and there's always going to be a ton of challenges no matter what as the underdog. Agreed. Yeah. So how are you as a company going to deal with other like larger companies, for example, Toyota, with their new rideshare thing where they basically split a car into different parts and allow multiple people making multiple trips to go in a self-driving car. They just announced this like uh, a little bit ago. Um, like how, how are you guys going to compete with that if you have a, co a company that's worth $80 billion or whatever it's worth now? Yeah, so I could touch on that, which I don't know too much about. Real quick, uh, let's hear like a 20 second, what their solution is. You said split up cars. I don't know what that means. Okay, yeah. So they are basically taking a car and allowing people to it's order it. It's a sedan, it. SUV, what type uh, of car? It depends on how far you're going or like how many people you're bringing with you. Okay. And it will like pull up, it's self-driving, and it will pick you up and whoever else and like take you where you need to go. It'll pick up multiple parties too, but it splits the car so that each party can have their own privacy. Each party can have their own privacy. Mm -hmm. Within the same car. It splits up the car within the own car? Within the same car? I mean, I don't so know. We'll like start by it's just kind of hard to understand this idea, so that'll make it easy. Maybe, yeah, like, maybe I, I'm not explaining it amazingly. Yeah, well, I don't know, but I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example with Uber. So a lot of investors, VCs, hey, well, what if Uber just does this? And, and they actually have tried to, which has been good in a sense that they've legitimized this group transportation market. And so they came out with a product uh, earlier this year maybe late last year, called Uber Charter. And the way it works is um, you go onto the app, if you want a Sprinter van like a Fetty or if you want a charter bus, uh, you go put your, putting your information um, and you have to do this three days in advance. Okay, so already that's the first thing, right? Uh, it's not solving much, but let's just take note, you have to do it three days in advance. The second thing is that it's gonna be about 70% higher cost than a Fetty. And then you'll ask why, I'll explain that in a second, but that's another thing. So it's more expensive, it takes more, you need three days in advance, it's already not sounding too good. And so the third thing too, is that one person pays for it, right? And so now what have we just talked about? We've talked about the old solution that's outdated. And the reason they've done this, and the reason that they have to adhere to these uh, negative aspects of this model is because what they've done is you go into Uber Charter, you submit your request, they send the request to US Coachways, which is their partner. And what US Coachways is a broker system. 
So what US Coachways does is then submits your request to a lot of operators in that area, which then bid for it and will service it. So essentially what they've done is they've become a party bus business with the old outdated model. And the reason they've done this is because it's much easier, right? I mean, to build something that's gonna impact customers is exactly that, you have to build it. And a lot of times these big companies will look at the bottom line and say, hey, a lot of our customers are coming from sedans, are coming from this and that. We don't wanna take the resources and time to properly build out a feature or a function or a product that's tailored toward this group market. Instead, we're gonna do it, and I'm sure they'll hear it, but we're gonna do it half-ass, right? And we'll see if it works. And what they're really thinking is that, hey, if someone else does it, what are they gonna do? They're gonna make an offer to buy it and save the money and time. So, so we're not too worried about the big companies. I'd be more worried about startups trying to do it, just because they're more nimble and fast and focused. Okay, yeah, as a, like the CEO of this startup, how is your work-life balance? And also, do you ever wish that you were in like a, like not a startup role? Because you like obviously have different career options. So like, do you, like what value do you see in, sorry, I don't know if I'm phrasing this properly, but like for instance, like you said that the work never really ends. So do you ever like wish that you had a role where there was someone telling you what to do or do you think this is the right path for you? Yeah, I never wish it because if I wished it, I would just do it, right? I would just give it up and just do something else. But that doesn't go without saying that it's all peaches and roses. Like I said, you have to deal with so much stress and issues and problems that are arising, whereas if you worked for another company, that's someone else's problem, right? It's, you know, it's a lot more stress. The work-life balance you sacrifice a lot. For example, I mean, when I was doing the party buses, I had to drive every weekend because when's the busiest time for that? Every weekend. So I wasn't going out with friends for a whole year. After that, when we got, you know, as we were building it, managing drivers, I, it was hard for me to go out or focus on anything else because all the time something was happening. A driver was calling me, hey, the bus isn't working where I'm getting a call, hey, I can't come in five minutes before shift, so I have to go do it. So for a, a whole year, and, and it probably didn't, we've de I've delegated, me and my co-founder, we've delegated enough to where it's not too much of an issue now. I've got a little bit more freedom, but for a year and a half, maybe two years, not having a weekend where you can relax can take a toll on a lot of people. So, so I mean, there's definitely a lot of sacrifices, a lot of risk, but I think it's worth it. Like I said, it, I'm in this opportunity to kind of do something that I think a lot of people haven't done, and I hope it doesn't stop with, with just Fetty or, or what it is right now. I hope it grows into a, a lot bigger things. I have a lot of bigger goals and, and, and visions for it, and fortunately, the position that I'm in right now allows me to believe those are feasible, whereas if I maybe just went a, a, another route, it would it, I think it would kill me thinking that I have this desire to do something great and not being in a position to do it. That makes sense. So while it is very hard, I think it's harder not to deal with the stress, if that makes sense. Well, while he's walking, one of my least favorite things about working at Favor is like the times you want to take off the most were also the busiest for demand. And it was like, oh, Super Bowl, like everyone favors something. Yeah. You're like, oh, like, 
you know, whatever. And so that was always, I was, I had a similar thing like out in the market by myself. I'd have to like clock in on Sunday morning. Yeah. No one wanted to go. Everyone wants to order takeout like Sunday morning in favor, but like no one wants to go run favor. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just me and my co-founder who are doing sacrifices. It's the whole team. A lot of the team's working on weekends. A lot of, if I need something done and, and it's a Saturday, I mean, it'll get done because it needs to be. And that's one of the things that when I talk about the stress in, in a startup, let's say it's the person who handles marketing. They don't have a huge team under them in a startup where they can take a day off and the machine is still running. It's literally if that person is sick or if that person doesn't work or if something happens for that whole day, the company has no marketing division. And think about that. If you multiply that between for every weekend, if you're dealing with a company that's super focused and has people super committed and working on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, they're going to beat the team that is taking those weekends off and it's going, having fun on, on weekday nights and, and whatever it is. Because if you just, that exponential time that's being lost versus where the competitor is still utilizing, if you, if you add that up, I don't know the math, maybe it's two, three, four extra months of marketing in a year that other company isn't doing. If you think about it that way, of course that that company that is sacrificing the work-life balance is going to succeed and that's what it takes. How and when did you guys make the transition from having both the software and operational aspects of the company into just a software company because that's something that our company has struggled with as well. Yeah, you you're really it's going to be it, it I, I can't remember the exact time, but I, I will tell you, I know it happened when it was forced to happen. So I'll get, it, it happened when we didn't have the money to go out and buy more vans, right? It happened when we didn't have the money to get more vans, finance plus the insurance cost. And that's the part of the bootstrapping where it forced us to think of innovative ways to say, hey, we need to continue growing, but we don't have the money to keep growing this way. So what can we do? We put out this opportunity for someone to create their business and utilize our platform that worked because we had the demand and we were able to grow and scale it that way so everything that we did was out of necessity or user feedback maybe time for one more all right i have one how'd you come up with the name fetty yeah so we want was actually the biggest question i wanted to ask today yeah. i'm glad i didn't forget so uh, we wanted to do something that was kind of this two-syllable, short, techie word, Uber, Lyft, Fetty, and uh, something that came off the tongue easily, but also left you questioning, why the hell is it named Fetty, right? And uh, came across it. It's a French oceanic term that means an extension of one's family. So essentially we say when you're in a Fetty, with, you're with your family. That might not be blood family, but with your, you're with your squad, you're with your group. And uh, we had a couple other options for the name of the company, but at the end of the day, this is this is the one that had the domain available. Yeah, very important. All right, who do we have? All right. So, why did you make the switch from equity-based financing to debt-based financing, and was that for control or just cost reasons? Yeah, it's definitely for uh, for you don't want to dilute yourself, and if you have to dilute yourself each time you want to expand. By the time you get to a scale where it's you know a, a really good price point, either IPO or cash flow or selling it, 
you're going to be left with nothing. So if, if you have to give up equity, if you have to raise capital or equity capital each time you want to grow, that's going to be unsustainable, not just for you as the founder, but also for the early investors. So they want to see, hey, if we give you $2 million, it's going to take you far, right? It's not going to say, hey, give us $2 million, but next year we have to raise another $2 million. And it's, you know, you're left in the, in the dust. And so uh, at first, that, that is what we had to do because we just had to get to scale. But now that we're, we've got really good cash flow in, we've got really good revenue numbers, we can go to these banks, we can go to these revenue financing partners, show them our financials and say, hey, the, the, you know, it's in the pudding. This is how much we spend. This is what we can make. This is how much we can pay you back. That we've done it across seven cities. Give us this much money. You're going to get 10% on that loan. It's going to make us this much money. And it makes sense to continue growing that way without diluting ourselves. And so I think that's important to figure out in terms of long-term strategy. But at the beginning, people always are, are like, oh, nitpicking equity at the very beginning. You really got to make sure it's a business first before you're worried about equity. Join me in thanking Matt for spending his evening with us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible, and special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode. Mm-hmm.